Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. This is episode 589. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 850 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Farm Girl Flowers. Farm Girl Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $10 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgirlflowers.com. And thank you to Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry with the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds. Supplied to farms large and small, and even to backyard cutting gardens like mine. Find the full catalog of flower seeds and bulbs at johnnyseeds.com. On December 1st, we opened up registration for next year's Slow Flowers Summit, our sixth. And it's so gratifying to see how many of you are jumping in to take advantage of our $100 off early bird ticket offer. Today, I also want to share more about our fantastic host venue, the Bellevue Botanical Garden in Bellevue, Washington, just outside Seattle. Today, please meet my friend Joseph Abkin, director of the Bellevue Botanical Garden Society, the Public Gardens Programming, Membership, and Development Arm, as he shares a bit about the history and mission of this very special place. Joseph has an extensive background in management, merchandising, and buying at independent garden centers, and for more than five years, he served as executive director of the Krukeberg Botanic Garden in Shoreline, just north of Seattle. Joseph joined the Bellevue Botanical Garden as society director earlier this year. He's an avid garden photographer, which allows him to nurture his daily photography practice at the Botanical Garden. Joseph and garden director James Gagliardi will give the opening remarks at the Slow Flowers Summit. In their presentation, Gardens for People, they will set the tone for our two-day immersive experience at Bellevue Botanical Garden and share the story of this important cultural resource serving the people of the Pacific Northwest and beyond, connecting people with nature. Celebrating its 30th anniversary in 2022, BBG is known for its world-class perennial border, the result of a partnership with the Northwest Perennial Alliance. We'll learn about the flowers, plants, and people of this beautiful destination. I'm so excited to share this gem with our guests, flower growers, floral designers, and flower gardening enthusiasts who will be inspired by both our program and this very special setting. Since it's currently the holiday season, when the Bellevue Botanical Garden hosts its special winter light show, Garden Delights, I filmed a short bonus after dark video tour of the gardens illuminated with twinkling botanical inspired light installations. You can see the video in our show notes for episode 589 at slowflowerspodcast.com. The light show continues through December 31st. So if you're in the Seattle area, schedule a visit at dusk. 
Let's jump right in and meet Joseph and learn more about the host venue for our 2023 Slow Flowers Summit. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Show with Deborah Prinzing, and I'm so excited to be here on a sunny day in December with my friend Joseph Abkin. Hi, Joseph. Hi, Deborah. It's nice to be here. <laughs> Thanks for saying yes. This is sort of a last-minute <laughs> interview, uh, but we're here at a beautiful place. We're at Bellevue Botanical Garden in Bellevue, Washington. Joseph is the director of the society? Correct. Okay. Yes. Um, and we are going to be having uh, so much fun together this year. I'm so excited about the Slow Flower Summit coming here to the garden. So I'm so glad that you asked. Oh, well, thank you for saying yes. I know it was kind of uh, unconventional that you're doing something like this. I think it's a big breakaway from the traditional aspect of things that happen here at BBG. That's the acronym we use here. Uh, Bellevue Botanical Gardens is a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think in general, it's such a genuinely good fit right? This kind of artistic expression of using natural materials. So that's what I think. I love that. That's the resonance there. Well, I know that Bellevue Botanical Garden has, I I say to people, it's a world-class garden, world-renowned plantings, and, you know, especially like the perennial perennial border. border. Right. That that if you're in horticulture at all, you've inevitably heard about it or visited or read an article um, seen photos for sure. Absolutely. And I, in my time in public gardens, it's only been about five and a half years, but my involvement, it's always been the garden that we point to, right? That Bellevue Botanical Garden is kind of like the crown jewel of our public gardens here in the Puget Sound area. It's yeah. a really an exemplary product. Um, you know, the, the partnership between a city and a nonprofit like Bellevue Botanical Garden, Botanical Garden Society, as well as the other nine partners who are so fundamental to the garden's success. So you point out the perennial border as being a world-class perennial border. That's a volunteer effort. It's amazing. You know, the Northwest Perennial Alliance is fully responsible for the planting, the upkeep, the maintenance, and the renovations and improvements. And so to be able to point to that and to be able to say that that's the effort of people, that's people's passion, that's people's, you know, commitment. It's not because they're being paid, you know, they're coming and doing this. And it's also the educational aspect of all of these things, right? So at the heart of everything that is BBG, it's education and providing an educational foothold. Well, I was going to say, to me, it's always been a teaching garden. Yes. And so um, having these partnerships, you mentioned the nine. We'll put a list on our show notes, but it's it's other plant societies yes. as well, right? Exactly. Like, like the so Perennial we have the, Alliance. We have Perennial Alliance, but we also have the Northwest, uh, Northwest Rock Garden uh, Society. We have... Uh, Washington Native Plant Society. We have, I mean, it's just kind of this expansive, you know, involvement with these. Even other the Fuchsia Society. The Fuchsia Society. I went crazy over yes. the Fuchsia when and I was And that here. is such a beautiful border, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so, so much effort, so much commitment from volunteers. Yeah. yeah. Well, give us sort of a, a snapshot because when I call it a world class botanical garden, I truly mean that, but I know there's so much, there's sort of the official description that you, I mean, it's, a, it's in the heart of an urban center. And it's like the central park of this area. It truly is, I think, the backyard for, for Bellevue. Yeah. Um, the proximity of it to, you know, downtown Bellevue is less than a mile. I mean, we're right here. We're just yeah. looking at these buildings. But we can see the high rises from here, yeah. which I love. Yeah. So we're kind of nestled in. We're a part of a large, larger park system. So we have the added benefit of being a contiguous property with Wilberton Hill. 
but the Bellevue Botanic Garden is 53 acres of its own, okay. and it's completely surrounded by development. Uh, and yet at the same time, when you're here and you're wandering through all of yeah. this, it's a very naturalistic feel. So. Oh, totally. It, it, you, you have no idea you're so close to uh, the freeways, you know, matrix of the city and of the region. And in my first few weeks here, I mean, I saw a bobcat, I saw a deer. I mean, every day there was all of this wow. wildlife that is present here. So this is a refuge for just everything from animals to people. And, uh, you know, every morning when I come in, I come early and walk the garden. I've got the same, you know, faces that I greet each day. So this has become a real you know, neighborhood gift, I think, for this area. When you say faces, I know we're getting off track here, but are you talking about people who walk here or animals or flowers? The same people. Okay. I have the same smiling faces, you know, of people every morning. We don't talk a lot, but we smile and we wave and we say good morning. And now we recognize each other. And now it's like a more emphatic wave and hello. But, you know, it's like that engagement of of recognizing that, a place like this within a city like Bellevue has, you know, a long-standing history, a 30-year history, and it was because of the passion of a, a set group of people. But we have an audience now that has expanded beyond that. Yeah. And so people have found their way here and have created their own connections. So whether you're a daily walker or you're a volunteer in the border, you've created your own attachment. So the walkers have like miles and miles of trails. Is that right? They can because okay. it will extend outside. But okay. Most of them just utilize the inner portion of okay. the garden. But I think they have their routes and they know exactly how yeah. many steps they're going to get. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Well, you also greet your favorite uh, trees and, and shrubs and perennials because I see your Instagram feed and you're looking for like basically what has seasonal interest at any given day. Exactly. I like to capture the moment. I like to be able to see that in retrospect, too, as the year goes by. But it's also my way of falling in love with Mm -hmm. my new place, right? So capturing these moments and creating an intimate attachment to things is how I do that through photography. Yeah. Um, So I really look forward to those moments where I get to have that to myself. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, we go back a long ways. We, I actually, when last time we talked, I remembered exactly where I met you in whose garden on a garden tour. <laughs> and it was before I moved to Southern California. So it must've been like 2005. It was about 2005. Yeah. Crazy. Right. And, um, we had apparently the garden owner, Tina was a mutual friend. Yes. Um, and then you were on the Northwest Horticultural Society board at one point or not? I was. Okay. I, I was a board member for about six years. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was too, but I think we didn't overlap. We did overlap. not overlap. Yeah. No. We're, we're, uh, we can be in the kind of club of alumni, alumni exactly. board members. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just through garden tours and lectures and the Northwest Flower Garden Festival and plant sales, our paths kept crossing and... Um, your most recent position was the director of a small public garden here in the region. And I I just talk a little bit about that experience and how that kind of prepared you for coming to the Bellevue Botanical Garden. I don't know that it prepared me. (laughs) It did. Well, Um, you said yes. Yes, I did. I said yes. Maybe it was just like dive in. (laughs) Yeah, just do it. Um, I was really fortunate that um, the opportunity to be the executive director of Krukerberg Botanic Garden in Shoreline came about. Um, just to back up a little bit, I was the general manager at Sky Nursery for a number of years. And in that capacity, I was also a buyer. And I was traveling a great deal back east. And I would go to Pennsylvania for one of my companies that I was buying from. And they would always take us to public gardens. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Which you have Chanticleer, so many, Longwood, right? you know, Winterthur. And 
And something in me was just like, this is the horticulture that I dream of. Like, this is the horticulture I want to be a part of. And You mean versus retail? Versus the retail. Which has its moments. And I, yeah. I love my time at Sky Nursery and I loved my customers and I... I've met people like you and Stacy and so many other people who became really core elements of my um, circle of influence. Yeah. But when the opportunity, at one point I made it a goal. I just said, I want to be in public garden administration. And I didn't know what that looked like at the moment, but I just thought that's where I want to go. Oh, me. And so Krukeberg became an opportunity. And of course they took it on they brought me into that capacity. And for five and a half years uh, I was there and it was Seriously, I think five and a half best years of my working career that I've ever experienced because it was such a intimate environment and a very, you know, kind of unique contrast to where I had been for 12 years at Sky yeah. Nursery. And, and I just, I realized that that's really where I thrive. To talk about Krugerberg and how, you know, Seattle and many regions have this sort of, you know, strand of pearls of a lot of botanical gardens and of varying sizes. And so I would say Krukerberg's on the Strand of Pearls for the Pacific Northwest. But but describe, how would you like to describe it? <laughs> you know... You probably wrote the description. <laughs> I I would oftentimes call it primitive in mm. comparison to a lot of the other gardens. It's a, it's, a, it's a modest space. And yet at the same time, it has such a unique, special quality to it because it is a naturalistic experience. Mm-hmm. It's not overly cultivated it's not overly curated it has some rough spots and it needs some love but if there's also that charm factor of that kind of minimal amount of influence right so a lot goes a long ways when it's just presented perfectly Mm -hmm. and i feel like the krukerberg is just that it's just nestled in the heart of that community in richmond beach it's completely surrounded by homes yet when you're there you feel like you've stepped off into you know the woods and the scale is residential in it's a way, completely right? residential yeah. it's four acres but you know you walk in and then you walk down that little hillside and you do you just kind of sink down into the bowl and you're surrounded by trees and wildlife and it's really special yeah and that's sort of like a quintessential um slice of the pacific northwest uh, completely native plant centric yeah. you know with a lot of just towering conifers it really gives you that um grand effect in such a small space yeah i'm glad that was uh you had such a good good run there because you really got to do some projects that you were passionate about and develop your your supporters and your members and um you know make a put a stamp on yeah on the on the local landscape i think it really helped expand awareness around krukerberg we really grew our membership we grew also though our programming the education aspect of things my Uh, the base of everything that I want to do in my job is that I want there to be this core educational element of things. And that was one of the main things about moving here to the BBG is that education is the society's number one strategic goal and plan. It's their um, edict from the city. Mm -hmm. You are there to facilitate and amplify education on behalf of the city of Bellevue. Wow. So Bellevue is, it's a, it's a, Govern, a city government that is the the owner of the of yes. BBG, correct. And then the society is sort of the education and fundraising arm. Is exactly. that correct? Okay, yeah. membership, membership and donor management, but also anything programmatic. So we are the ones that produce the current event, which is Garden Delights. Um, we also are arts in the garden, and we are 
you know, anything program driven. So um, the docent programs, um, those are all things that come from the society to help support the mission of the garden. That's Um, what's driving membership then. Yes. I mean, people love to come here, but there's no admission charge. Correct. So that, which is a gift to the community, but how do you generate the the monetary support you need? Exactly. So through the membership aspect of things, people kind of come in at the just basic level, but then as they become more attached to the garden and become more involved with things, they become more committed to that in a donor-driven mm-hmm. part of that aspect of things. Our membership is pretty robust. Can you say how many members you have or do you know? We have a little over 2,000 members. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. It's impressive. And, and I bet you that, like other botanical gardens that I've heard anecdotally, there was a lot of growth during COVID because... People wanted to be outdoors. And I they... think all botanic gardens experienced kind of an uptick. While we kind of initially all shut down, once we realized that our outdoor spaces were safe, it really became that refuge during yeah. a really difficult time. And so people um, began to develop that recognition and understanding of the value of places like this in their communities because they cannot go away. They have to be here, yeah. you know. And so that that commitment, I think we saw a, a nice steady commitment at the Krugerberg during that period of time. Our donors were very generous and very consistent. Um, our membership went up and I think the same thing happened here. in mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that a lot of flower farmers who, who had the ability to welcome you pick customers or, you know, people to shop at the farm stand, all of those um, spaces became in, in a very similar way became, um, important and more valued because we couldn't be indoors. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, here we are. You said yes when I asked you if we could have the Slow Flowers (laughs) Summit uh, here at Bellevue Botanical Garden. Actually, as soon as we decided to bring the summit to Seattle, I said, I know exactly where I want it to be because the facilities here are remarkable. The the visitor center, I've attended uh, workshops and presentations and I've actually also spoken to groups there and um, it, can you just describe why it's so it's so versatile and why it's so perfect for this space? Because it has a lot of sustainability values, too. It really does. It's a LEED-certified building. Um, Olsen Koenig were the architects. They were just here recently after so many years of you know being in existence. They're, they kind, of, through they're and kind of rock stars. They are rock right. stars. But they also come in and they're like, we see it now and you know in the rearview mirror now perspective of like what we did and what can we do better and they brought in their students of course so still using it as an example but you know it's such a beautiful building visually to walk up to it doesn't feel heavy and oppressive when you get here and yet the versatility of the space is so great yeah. especially the Aaron Education Center which is where we'll be hosting right. the summit you know is uh a very diverse building. It can be broken up into individual classrooms or it can become a very large symposium style space with, you know, rolling up doors and bringing the outside in and bringing in tons of sunlight because it does face South. Um, And of course, a very expansive pack car plaza space out there as well that can allow us to entertain even further outside of the building. So creating that kind of theater of experience yeah you know and it's also like nestled like you that even though it's very tall building it's in one of the one of the lowest elevation spots so it's sort of doesn't loom it feels like it's just you walk upon it and you're like oh my gosh this is a cool building and all the walls open up and so you're inside listening to a speaker and then you're looking out at the the rockery yeah (laughs) i mean the scale of the space 
they really took into a lot of consideration, I feel, like how it's going to fit within the footprint here. And so it does nestle slightly, even though from the front it's, you know, approachable. It's beautiful. And so we'll be able to have um, all of our um, lectures and uh, breakout sessions there. We'll, our meals will happen in and around there, I'm sure. None of that has been confirmed yet. Uh, but I think um, it's kind of a home base. And then the beautiful thing is on your lunch break or on your coffee break or before or after uh, the summit, you got Bellevue Botanical Garden to yes. come uh, explore. And yeah. that's for people's like downtime and for wellness, mental health, you've got, you've got nature just pulling you outdoors. To it's right there waiting yeah. for you. Yeah, you're just a footstep away from the perennial border or just a short walk to the Yao Japanese Garden, you know, if you really want to get away a little bit. So special. And if you really want a great special event, you know, experience, go down to the ravine and cross the footbridge, which is really spectacular. And all you know, of these I've never done that. that. Oh, you're kidding. What happens when you cross the footbridge? Well, it takes you over to the other side and sends you over towards Wilburton Hill Park. Okay, but there's so it's also, more like green space. It is a convenient little loop trail that brings you right back to the bridge if okay. you want. Okay. But the bridge is very special. Everything's yeah. done done beautifully. Um, okay, so what is your favorite route to take? And you talked about it in your morning walk. But what would you recommend for the summit guests? I think it's end of June. Yeah. It's kind of peak for a lot of a lot of things here. Maybe not the dahlias, but we can wait and come back in August <laughs> or September for that. Um, but do, do you like? Do you have a favorite loop? I really do. I I take the path down towards the Yao Garden and go past it. And there's a side trail that takes you off of the gravel path and it becomes mulch and the quietness sets in. Mm. No more crunchy crunch, right? Mm-hmm. And you're kind of in the understory. There. You're in the understory yeah. of some big cedars and it takes you around to the footbridge and you can either cross the bridge and do the small loop over there. But I can tend to go past it and hit the next little bark trail where it's, again, just more of that quiet trampling mm. and peacefulness. But then I bring myself back out and then do the main loop around the backside, past the Lost Meadow and back up the hill. Mm. You just get such a nice variety of um, being enclosed as well as being out in the open. It is a spectacular garden at any time of the year. When I think about the varying topography, it must you must have so many little microclimates. Even when I think about, oh, well, you've got the woodland, but then you have the rockery, which is completely different environment totally different um it's a perfect for any gardener the, to geek out about and the funny thing too is that james and i both are brand new here at the garden and we were looking at a big map of the garden and on there's this beautifully displayed body of water and we have both of us looked many many times for that body of water it turns out it's seasonal and so <laughs> it is full now okay and it's very present oh, but of course the in of june and july and august when we were having some of the driest time of the year it was completely non-existent. You're like, like, what is this, a pretend pond? Is this a future thing? Are we planning ahead for this? But no, there is an immense amount of water right now all over the Wilburton Hill. We have uh, seasonal ponds everywhere here, which is wow. really fascinating. So you kind of catch doing all that rainwater catchment and just keeping it. And being it. on top of a hill, mm-hmm. it's just collecting. It's in its natural spots here on the hill where they've been collecting water naturally over the years, over the decades. Um and so they'll all disappear, of course, by the time summer rolls back around. 
But it really was kind of a That's funny. crazy. Yeah, it was a funny thing. To, I kept thinking, where am I going to find this big pond? <laughs> Is there a lot of like bird life that kind of gathers at those areas now? Or? There are. Like, the garden is teeming with birds at the moment, um, especially a lot of the smaller birds who are foraging under the leaves. You can really listen. You can hear them moving around. But we also have a lot of um, predators. So we have owls and hawks. Um, and what did you say you saw when you first got here? Coyote? Uh, I saw a, a bobcat. A bobcat. Okay, yeah. sorry. They're all yeah. like a feline um, creature. <laughs> at first I was like, why? Oh, that's a big house cat. <laughs> but, They're predators uh, too then. We have a lot of wildlife here. Uh, we have a barred owl right now that's raising a lot of uh, chaos with our guests has stolen a number of beanies off of people's heads. No way. Yeah, we've had to put up some signs to warn our guests that uh, we have a barred owl that will swoop down. Yeah. I guess that they, they like bright, shiny objects? I or? think it's really common, especially this time of year, with juvenile bar, barred mm-hmm. owls. They really are kind of not fully developed in terms of what's what. They're it's, kind of playful. And they are also, I think, a little bit mischievous in that regard. Yeah. So it's not uncommon to be swooped by a barred owl. Wait, do you think that they see that as a little mouse or, or a little I don't know what they think of creature? it as, other okay. than just being territorial, maybe, and yeah. just trying to scare you away. But we have a couple of beanies stuck up in the trees. That is hysterical. So. I had no idea. Yeah. You almost need like a, a cam, some kind of... There needs to be a what? Yeah, an <laughs> owl cam. <laughs> We have, we have put up a number of signs. If you hear a hoot, scoot. But the problem is, is he doesn't give me any warning, I don't think. But it's a clever thought, just to make you aware. I'm going to remember that when I go back out later on. Um, that is hysterical. Well, the reason I asked you about how you move your way through the garden is when Karen and I came to visit you a couple of months ago, we showed you the photos of the floral takeover that yes. we did at Filoli, and you just lit up. You were like, oh, we can do that here. And yeah. you ran us around looking at all these possible Immediately, which is like, I knew exactly where these things needed to happen. Yeah, because yeah. you have a design sensibility. And I know you've done landscape design in your in your life, especially for yourself. Yes. And being in a retail nursery, you're well, I talking about my, it constantly, right? I think I'm a very visual person. Yeah. So I always think of, you know, structure and form. And as a photographer, you're always looking at things that way as well. So immediately when I saw those... Uh, examples i just could not wait yeah, yeah. and if i lonely a lot of it was indoors and we had some outdoor installations but here we're going to have um everything from giant tree trunks to um lattice arbors. fences and arbors and uh, even like railings there's so many different ways that um our teams of slow flowers summit attendees can as groups kind of take over and and Add their flair to embellish, yeah. Add their flair to this, and I think, um, you know, responding to to the to the site and to what what that what that structure or tree is, it's gonna. Some might be a little more formal, and some might be very wild. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. would it? Yeah, I can't wait. I think that you'll have to shoot them all. I will. I'm gonna have to photograph them all. But I think it's also going to give the guests who come to the garden. Like, it's going to really resonate with people, but it's going to wow them. You know, yeah. it's going to just kind of jar them out of their uh, normal you know, engagement with the garden because it's going to be so dramatic. I think that's why these sort of, like, we do a botanical couture uh, campaign every year and why installations are really popular among our members. It's like you are getting the viewer to look at flowers in a different way and surprise them and maybe just trigger curiosity. It's not just always in a vase and, yeah. um, and it's natural. It's theater too. It right? is theater. Yes. 
There's yeah. some magic, I think, behind all that creativity. And I love that uh, that notion of getting people to see things differently. Mm-hmm. I think even in today, even in the garden, there are people who just walk through and they really aren't seeing the garden. They're just seeing the space. But that kind of an installation yeah. all of a sudden brings that focus into a really sharp I've been thinking a lot lately about this concept of nature blindness and how in society there are, there is this sort of um, you know lack of seeing and I know that you and Joseph are going to you and James are going to talk about gardens and people and the mission of the garden here because you're going to be our opening speaker so I feel like there's something there that you are always urging people to not be blind and to to connect with the garden I mean, I grew up in such a small rural community, and a, as a young child or young teen and a teenager, a lot of my time was spent roving on my own out in the wild, out in the woods. And so my awareness factor of all the things that are around me were both self-protection, so being mindful of rattlesnakes or not getting into poison oak where I grew up was a big problem. But it also... <laughs> you kept your eyes open. You kept your eyes open. You paid yeah. attention to where you were walking and what you were doing. But... There's also that aspect of what you're doing is that you're becoming more attached and connected to everything that's happening around you. So I'm constantly dialed into a bird moving through the leaves or uh, something flying mm-hmm. overhead. or you know. And I feel like as a society, we really have, and it's not an, an exaggeration to say very focused to what's in our hands right now. And that's our, our little phone, devices. And our devices. And you, we see it everywhere. And it... I know that there's real value in those things and as a user, and I rely on those things myself. But there's such a loss, I feel, that you're not hearing or seeing or experiencing a lot of the naturalness in our world, yeah. whether it's in an urban setting yeah. or out in the wild. Yeah, we really have to challenge people to use their senses. And I, I think that the Slow Flowers uh, Summit attendees are kind of ready for that. You know, they're, they're florists or flower farmers or people working in or in the floriculture world who just need a pause and need a break. And so that's why I care so much about having, yeah. uh, not being in a ballroom at a hotel, which we have done, but I mean, yeah. moving in this direction of being in a botanical space, um, it's just like another layer of experience for people. Exactly. So very fun. Um, tonight, I'm going to stay a little late and take a little video. I don't know how it's going to work, but we're going to try it. Okay. Uh, the, the light show. Yeah, it's very photogenic. Okay, so uh, can you describe? It's called Garden of Delights. It it's is Garden Delights. Garden Delights, okay. I think the most notable thing about this is that it's not really a holiday specific kind of display. Right, that's true. You've got, you know, a, a core group of volunteers who work pretty much 11 months out of the year to produce this. This is not produced by paid staff, but it's a botanically representational light display. So bluebells or delphinium or sunflowers or corn, there's a whole gamut of botanically displayed lights out there. There are whimsical things. We have Snap the Dragon, and we have a a few things that's, uh, we have what's called the critter map for kids to engage with so Mm -hmm. they can look for things like the teddy bear or the ladybug or the dragonfly. Kind of like a scavenger hunt kind of thing. Exactly, for the kids as they're doing their thing. But overall, the main aspect of this is the botanical nature of all of the lights. Yeah, so nothing's really up on outlining a a living, existing tree. Something has been crafted to look like a pasta or to look like a snapdragon. Wow. Yeah, it's impressive. It. I came to a workshop once 
years ago where I watched someone demonstrate how these um, large-scale, like, upsized bluebells are made or, or the rhododendron flowers. Or I mean, they're, it's magical. They take... It's an incredible amount of it, technique. It, okay, <laughs> I'm going to say what I remember, remember, and you can correct me. It's like you take a, a strand of Christmas lights yes. or tree lights, yep. and, but they're only maybe one color. Yes. They're not multicolored. And then they are somehow clustered together to they make a flower. Hold them. They take up all of that extra strand and they create a structure, you really? know, using either using rebar or floral uh, posts, some sort of floral wire. But then they bring all of that together and cluster them and they do it in, you know, repetition, which creates the individual flower look. But it is an incredible amount of detail and effort. And each year, these creative wunderkinds put together a new element. Somebody will say, we need to create Japanese forest grass. And they'll put together a thought process around that, and they'll be like, this is how it's going to work, and this is what we can do, and we have Japanese forest grass this year in the display. That's crazy, but that was probably just inspired by the fact that there is exactly Japanese forest grass in the, in the garden. They encounter something that they see, and they're like, I think we could make that. Wow. And so it really is incredible. I mean, the thing that I, I mentioned, the rhododendrons, they, they always, always impress me, but also the, um, the clusters of draping wisteria are front. insane <laughs> and of course thank goodness you can buy sort of color correct you know lavender lights or whatever sometimes it's not it's not meant to be a exact and, replication yeah exactly but i think i mean our group is able to order lights custom mm. lights from you know commercial dealers oh i didn't know that so we're not that. limited to what you can get at true value okay, right that although the light the lights are getting better right okay but we do have the ability to do commercial ordering and so the they can get a much more customized color tone. Okay. Yeah. That makes me feel better. Gives you a lot more variety. Um, speaking of variety, do you have? I, I'll look up all the stats when I do the little walk around because I know there's something about how many lights. Um, Five hundred thousand lights. What? Oh, you know. Okay. Five hundred thousand lights. Yeah. It's half about, a billion lights. Half a million lights, and it's uh, sixty-four hundred hours about of, of volunteer of time. time. Yeah. Wow. It's an incredible. Yeah. Uh, an effort. I mean, it's a gift to the community, and also I love that it's so so bloom-centric and horticulture-centric. It's not, you know, Santa's elves. Nope. Other places do that, and they We've do that We've got the well. poinsettia tree. Okay. That's our little nod to yeah. Christmas. Yeah, but even that. That's um, horticulture. <laughs> even that, the, 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 the bracts of the poinsettia are very well represented. Exactly. That's cool, and that goes, it starts, you said, the Saturday after Thanksgiving? Yeah, so this year it started on November 26th, and it will run through December 31st, which wow. is the last Saturday of December. We will be closed on Christmas this year. I think that's a new thing for the organization. Uh, but otherwise, it is every night, and it starts at 4.30 until 9 o'clock. Wow. Yeah. I remember dragging my boys here. I say dragging because, you know, it, rain or shine, you know. Yeah. People come, and yes, we do, do get we do get winter winter drizzle. But uh, I I always had the reward afterwards, like you know we can go for pizza or yeah. we can go get hot Sweeten cocoa. The deal. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> I love it, and um, and we're, I'm going to try to shoot a little video to share with everybody. But there's lots of photos on your website too. There so are. I want to uh, make sure when we post this um, in the show notes at slowflowerspodcast.com, I'll have some photos and videos that that I'll get from your team. Um, because there really is, this is a four season garden. It's a 12 month garden. Um, there's something to 
yes. learn, learn about all the time. So I'm excited. What did I not ask you that you want to make sure you mention before we wrap up? I don't think there's Have anything. you learned how to do these Christmas like oh, clusters? Oh, no. No, I no. have not had a moment You're just to going do to that. I like from- to, I do admire from a distance, and I, I just love to go in there and, and see what they're doing and, and watch the process. It's been really fun. They're a great group of folks, too, yeah. because they're, they have a great sense of humor, and they really have had a hard time this year with the weather. Uh, our first opening couple of weeks, we had the snow event. We had, you know, a heavy wet snow event and oh, a lot of yeah. rain, and um, created a lot of headaches and complications, but I just admire their tenacity because they just show up the next morning and they're like, "All right, let's get out here and fix this." It's just, you know, in a way, in a way, it's sort of symbolic of what that description. I'm thinking, well, you would say the same thing about the the team that's that's tending to the perennial border. Absolutely, you know? they figure it out and they they're um, they're well educated. They know how to prune and how to uh, exactly. divide and you know do all the things that you do in a perennial garden. Um, but you couldn't have that garden without volunteers. No, yeah, no, it, it is an immense effort. You know, that's a lot of upkeep with a lot of herbaceous material and, you know, just a lot of varying necessities, different needs and aspects of things. And they're just such a fun little core group of problem solvers. I just love coming up to them in the morning when they're huddled out there dealing with something and they'll ask me for my opinion. And we just kind of come up with this, you know, really good solution and how we're going to move forward. And it's really interactive and just, I don't know. I feel connected now in a way that I had when I first got here. So I love it. Well, be prepared to answer a lot of questions about what's in bloom, what these plants are, maybe people who are coming from other parts of the U.S. and Canada, uh, maybe even beyond, who maybe haven't encountered one of our local favorite perennials. And you'll be getting... They'll be envious. Yes. Yes. They will be envious, and that's why we're having it here. Exactly. Joseph, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. So much fun, and um, I just am delighted that we can kind of wrap up the year with this teaser to get people excited uh, about grabbing their registration to come to the summit. Our early bird ticket sales go on till the end of the year, so we're getting a lot of action there, and um, we'll be featuring interviews with all of our speakers between now and June, but I got Joseph first, so thank you. You're very welcome. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us today. Remember, early bird discounts for the Slow Flower Summit registration expire on December 31st. So take advantage of the lowest ticket prices available. You can learn more at slowflowersummit.com and in our show notes at slowflowerspodcast.com for episode 589. As I mentioned there, you can also watch the replay video of my conversation with Joseph and see my short video tour of Garden Delights. Our next sponsor thank you goes to Mayesh Wholesale Florist. Family owned since 1978, Mayesh is the premier wedding and event supplier in the U.S. And we're thrilled to partner with Mayesh to promote local and domestic flowers, which they source from farms large and small around the U.S. Learn more at mayesh.com. One more announcement. If you missed out on our December 9th Slow Flowers member virtual meetup, all about value-added flower farm products, you can catch the replay video. I just posted it to our YouTube channel. You'll hear from Natasha McCrary of 1818 Farms, 
and Sarah Wagstaff of Suat Farm and Flowers as they share how many of their floral crops are reimagined and repurposed into botanical products that extend the seasons into year-round revenue. You can find the link to watch in today's show notes at slowflowerspodcast.com for episode 589. Our final thank you goes to The Gardener's Workshop, which offers a full curriculum of online education for flower farmers and farmer florists. Online education is more important than ever, and you'll want to check out the course offerings at thegardenersworkshop.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. The Slow Flowers Podcast is a member-supported endeavor, downloaded more than one million times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show and our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowersociety.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of The Slow Flowers Show and The Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one base at a time. I'll see you then.